You're listening to Conversations with John Anderson, featuring Dr. Andrew Browning. This conversation is with Dr. Andrew Browning. And Andrew has written a book, which I picked up only a matter of eight or nine months ago and could not put down. It's called A Doctor in Africa. And you'll see Andrew today, like me, in a suit and tie, uh, but he looks very different on the cover of this. He's in working clobber, uh, and as in fact I usually am as well, but his is a medico, mine is a farmer. And there you go. I couldn't put the book down because Andrew is a vivid writer. It's a fascinating story, and unlike so many autobiographies, it's not about him. There's an extraordinary modesty about the whole work at the same time as he tells a story that's so powerful that no lesser figure than Princess Anne wrote a preface for it. So who's Andrew Browning, an Australian trained uh, obstetrician and gynaecologist uh, who's worked as a Christian missionary doctor in Africa for nearly 20 years as a senior fistula surgeon. My understanding, he can correct me when we start talking if I'm wrong, but he himself has undertaken something like 8,500 operations, transforming, life-transforming operations. Andrew was active in Rwanda during the terrible genocide period. He led the first regional Hamlin Fistula Hospital and served tirelessly, transforming rundown health services into safe and functional ones for poor women in remote regions. He continues to operate fistula camps in Malawi, Sierra Leone, Kenya, Chad, Uganda, Congo and Togo. I found him very inspirational, not just because of the book, uh, and uh, his profound commitment to using his talents for the benefit of others when so often most of us want to use them for ourselves is what lies at the base of my great respect for him. Andrew, thank you so much for giving us your time. Uh, thank you, John. Can I begin by saying, look, you frankly have devoted your life to helping women on the other side of the world from very different cultures, suffering from the horrors of obstetric fistulas. Firstly, can you tell us a little bit about what this condition is and what it actually means for the women who, who have this terrible problem. Um, yeah, thanks, John. I mean, it might be easier to explain what a fistula is by giving you a story of a patient. And I've got many stories. As uh, you alluded to, I've operated on many thousands of women in fist with fistulas and many tens of thousands more have cared for them uh, indirectly. Um, but there are, are some stories that just stick in your mind. And I'll tell you the story of Ngolo, who was a patient of mine in East Africa some years ago. And she was quite typical. Uh, she was living in a remote village in southern Tanzania, miles from any sort of medical infrastructure or help or midwives or doctors. The Mongolo grew up in a little village. She was married at, she doesn't know the age, but probably about the age of 15, and uh, soon after became pregnant. She did what all the women in her village did, and she went in labour in her mother-in-law's house and uh, tried to deliver her baby. After a full day of labour, she still hadn't delivered her child. She'd got into what's called obstructed labour, and this is uh, the medical 
part of the talk, John. Yeah. I actually gave this talk to a, a boys' school just recently, and this part of the talk, um, one of the boys fainted. And <laughs> so I th asked the teachers, oh, should I turn it down? They said, oh, don't, 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 don't worry. He um, fainted in sex ed class, so you're all right. So, um, <laughs> but I'll give you that explanation. Obstructed labor means that the baby's just getting stuck in labor. So if this is the mother's pelvis, baby's head, it's getting stuck. There's a mismatch. Either the pelvis is too small, head's too big, or maybe the baby's coming out the wrong way, it's getting stuck. So this happened to Angolo, as it does to many women in Australia as well. Um, but for Angolo, she couldn't get to a hospital, she couldn't have a caesarean an operation, so she stayed in labour. Another full day passed, and after two days of labour, she still hadn't delivered her child. The husband was beside himself, he knew that she should have delivered by now, um, but didn't know how to help. He was illiterate, he'd never been to school, but he had the idea that if he boiled some water and put her feet into the boiling water, that might stimulate her uterus to contract. He did this for two more days, and after four days of labor, she still hadn't delivered her child. She was now unconscious, and unconscious on the fifth day of labor, she delivered a dead or stillborn child. It took her two days to regain consciousness, and when she did regain consciousness, she found that she was leaking uncontrollably from her bladder and also her bowel. Because she'd been in labor for so long, the baby's head had been pressed against the bones of her pelvis, so all the tissues between, bladder, birth canal, rectum, birth canal, all had its blood supply cut off, so those tissues died. So after she delivered her stillborn child, all those dead tissues came away and she was left with a big fistula or a hole between bladder, outside world, rectum, outside world. So she was leaking continually. She smelt. She was ashamed. Husband divorced her. She went back to live with her mother. The mother couldn't keep her inside the house because she smelt so badly. She was too ashamed to go to church or to the community. So she locked herself away in a little hut and unable to walk because of burns on her feet, she stayed in that hut for 18 months. <clears throat> After 18 months, <clears throat> she was found by a mission and taken to a hospital about 100 kilometers away. They tried to help her. Uh, they operated on her three times, uh, but she couldn't be cured because they hadn't been trained in this fistula surgery, it's called. She was then found by our outreach workers and brought to us in northern Tanzania, a huge two-day journey <clears throat> for her to come to us. Um, and we operate on our patients with a spinal anaesthetic, so they're, they're awake during the operation. It's a very safe anaesthetic. But N'Golo, as we operated, was so, had so given up hope that she could ever be cured that she just sobbed uncontrollably throughout the operation. We operated. Uh, she had a two-week recovery period uh, in the hospital with all the other fistula patients. So she came, she was very demure. She, she um, barely looked at anyone in the, in the face. She was depressed. But as, in that two-week recovery period, she started to interact with all the other patients, started to smile, started to laugh. She saw the catheters come out of the other patients and saw one by one that they were dry and cured. And then it came for her day to have the catheter out and she was thankfully cured, just rejoicing, giving thanks to God, clapping her hands, jumping and dancing, just giving thanks to God that her dignity was restored. And she said to me as she was leaving, look, I'm gonna go home. I'm never going to get married again. I'm never going to meet another man. I'm gonna study and become a midwife and uh, help women just like me. So she went home 
And I caught up with her a couple of years later and she was going to school back in her village. And uh, who knows, in a few years time, maybe she will be a midwife and help women just like her. So that's the experience of having a fistula is absolutely awful. Women have been getting fistulas ever since they first started to deliver babies. There's records of fistulas way back in ancient Egyptian times. Actually, the world's first fistula hospital was built in New York in 1855. We've eradicated them now. Um, and so that first fistula hospital is now closed because there's no business for that in America anymore. But there's still a great need for care for these women. And we think there's about 2 million fistula patients still waiting for treatment around the world, most of them in um, sub-Saharan Africa. So there's still a great deal of work to do. Um, but there's also, we know it's prevented because we've prevented it here in our countries. We can also prevent it in the rest of the world as well. And as I understand it from your book and from our conversation, people are starting to get the message and, and you're, you're seeing that preventative side start to trip in. Mm, absolutely. I mean, it's paralleled with um, maternal death rates. So mothers still die all too frequently trying to have a baby. Um, here, that We measure it in per 100,000 deliveries. In Australia, it stands of about seven maternal deaths, mothers dying per 100,000 deliveries. Many areas of the world, in South Sudan, where I was just um, two weeks ago, it's still over 1,000 deaths per 100,000 deliveries. Um, but as you make healthcare available, affordable, that is free, um, women can have access to safe obstetric care. You'll not only stop them dying uh, in labour and stop the baby dying as well, but you'll stop them from developing a fistula. Andrew, when you were just 23 in 1993, you were studying to be a doctor, you opted to take your in-hospital training in Tanzania, which is relatively stable by African standards, but very, very poor, a lot of very disadvantaged people. Um, other doctors uh, jet off to London or the US if they have the opportunity. Uh, Tanzania borders Rwanda, where there was a horrific genocide happening at that time. Why Tanzania? Hmm. Um, it's a beautiful place <laughs> to start with. And despite its, its poverty, the people are absolutely gorgeous. I didn't know that before going, of course. But um, I grew up in a Christian household and we were surrounded by stories of mission. I had an aunt growing up in Africa. I had uncles and aunts who were missionaries in various other places of the world as well. Grew up in a church that supported missionaries. And at the age of six, I was um, sitting in Sunday school in the church hall in Barrel on a freezing cold Barrel day, if there are anything else but freezing cold days in Barrel, on the bare wooden floor at the, the feet of this return nurse missionary. And she's telling all sorts of romantic, wonderful stories of helping people in Africa and serving God over there and the, just the wilds of Africa, the animals, the, the, the different tribes. I was captivated as a six-year-old. And um, I guess that sort of childish imagination hasn't left me. And uh, so at the age of, um, what was it, about 22, 23, I think it was, uh, had the opportunity to, to work in a hospital anywhere. And so I chose that mission hospital uh, that that lady had returned from in uh, Tanzania. So I packed my bags and off I went and experienced what mission life was, was like firsthand for the first time. It's an interesting contrast. I went to Moshi, Moshi, depending on how you pronounce it, uh, in Tanzania a few years ago. And I met there a young Tanzanian doctor who'd trained at the Lutheran training hospital there. It's one of, I think, only three major training hospitals in Tanzania. Mm -hmm. uh, and he couldn't wait to get out of Africa. Mm -hmm. he, he was engaged to an Australian girl. And all he wanted to do was to get out of there, mm -hmm. despite their critical shortage of doctors, and come to Australia. Mm -hmm. 
but you've chosen to do exactly the opposite. Mm. So it says something very interesting about your commitment to serving others. Mm. Well, I guess that the inspiration when I was six from the feet of that um, missionary lady was to, to serve as a missionary doctor. But it wasn't until much later, when I was actually 14, that I committed my life to Christ, took that step to become a Christian. And there was nothing more liberating than to confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he raised from the dead. That really renewed, refreshed my life. And I wanted to use the, and committed then, to use the skills that he had given me, the gifts that he had given me. I didn't deserve any of these medical talents or whatever. I mean, they were given to me. Um, uh, so I wanted to use those to, to serve God. And what better way to serve God than to serve the, the poor? And there's plenty of poor people in the world. And um, there's more poor people, comparatively, needy people needing health care in Africa than there are in Australia. So in some small way, um, try and balance up that equation. I've often thought it must be an incredibly difficult cultural adjustment when you've been out there living in those circumstances and so forth. And you did it as a young man because you came back here to further your training. So you'd seen it, you'd become enmeshed, you'd become excited by it at one level, the challenge of making that service contribution. You come back here where, if I can just be critical of mine and your culture for a moment, we tend to take things for granted. We're not very thankful for what we've got. How, do you, how did you cope then with that adjustment? And, and is it still a big adjustment for you? You go backwards and forwards? Yes, it is. Thanks, John. Thanks for perceiving that. It's, um, and I've just came back from Africa a week ago, so you probably caught me at my most critical <laughs> time. It takes, um, when you're in that culture and dealing with the, the very real and tragic issues of life, uh, and then you come back to Australia and everything is, 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 is so lovely in comparison. I mean, you have, if I could just maybe digress a tiny bit, I mean, my, my children grew up in Africa and um, my youngest just the other day said look when we lived in Tanzania we often didn't have water in the house we'd have to go fix it with buckets and we'd have to boil it to have a, you know, a bath and that sort of thing we didn't have electricity for, for great lengths of time for days on end uh, there was sometimes food that we didn't have and um, or the police would stop us the road and hassle us but I was always grateful for everything but here in Australia we always have water we always have electricity the police never stop us we always have food and I'm no longer grateful for anything and he was uh, actually just about 10 <laughs> when he said that. Uh, very insightful, but I, I feel that too. When you, when you live in a, in a culture, um, and I've lived with some of the, the most underprivileged cultures, if you're talking materialistically, talking spiritually, they're very privileged, um, but materialistically, mostly some of the most unprivileged countries, peoples in the world, and you come back to Australia where everything is just given to you, um, people just lose their sense of, of gratitude because it's just all, all there for them. And if I was to be critical, that's the, the biggest culture shift going backwards and forwards, uh, the lack of gratitude for everything that we do have. But people work for it hard here, there's no doubt about that. They really do work hard to, to get that, and um, but uh, a sense of gratitude for that would not be go astray. Yeah, my family often uses a hackneyed phrase that probably everybody's heard, but we'll be discussing what looks like some terribly serious problem and then somebody will just break the ice by, by saying, uh, yeah, well, this is a first world problem, isn't it? <laughs> uh, but, um, and just building on that, I, I took my family because I wanted them to see how fortunate we were. We had four kids to Tanzania. Uh, and my, at that stage, 12-year-old daughter, we went from Tanzania to London and we were walking in Hyde Park and I said to my 12-year-old daughter, who's very perceptive, uh, 
very different, isn't it? And she said, yes, Dad, it sure is. We've been in Tanzania where they have nothing and they laugh and they smile and they interact. And here in London, people seem to have everything and they all look miserable. Mm -hmm. It really struck me. It's a very interesting thing out of the mouths of children sometimes. Yes. Yeah. Um, now, um, many people in Australia, anyway, will have heard of Dr. Catherine Hamlin, the Australian uh, doctor. Her husband, I think, Reg, Reg. was his name. That's right. They started uh, this work and became well known. You got to meet her, I think, and I think she interacted directly with you and, and, and asked you to pick up her work. Mm, that's right. Is that what happened? Yes. Yeah, so I, to explore missions, I went and uh, in 1996, I think it was, I uh, went to Ethiopia to work with my aunt, who's been living there since 1973. She's quite a legend, I gather. Val. Val, yes, she's yeah. the black sheep of the family. And um, she's extraordinary, actually. She, she's married into a nomadic tribe in the desert. She runs a huge development organisation employing 750 people, bringing literacy work. Um, I mean, when they, she first went there, uh, the language of the Afar wasn't even in writing, so they had to put it in writing first and teach people how to read and write. Then they suddenly realised, oh, there's no books or newspapers or anything written in Afar because uh, it's not been in writing before. So then they had to put material into writing to give people things to, to read. Uh, and so she developed up this huge development organisation. And um, so I went to work with her in the desert uh, in 1996 to explore if we could, um, I could join her as a doctor. And we were wandering around the Afar desert with uh, the nomads, with the donkeys, I'm um, not the donkeys, the camels, um, sleeping out in the desert at night. And um, it was so hot. It's the hottest inhabited place in the world. and. Uh, come time to, to go to bed, everyone would be in these dome-shaped huts. It was about 30 degrees, 35 degrees, and um, they think it was chilly at that time of the year, so they had an open fireplace in the hut, Ooh. 10 of us crammed in these little huts. It was just too hot for me, so I slept outside, but hyenas come and prowling around the, the houses. <laughs> so I had to sleep with a guard next to me, and every now and then there'll be a bang, bang, as he shoots this Kalashnikov at this hyena getting too close, <laughs> and this yelping hyena running away. And uh, then later that night, um, a camel, Bellowing, bellowing away, gives birth about two metres away from my head, just splashing me with amniotic fluid. And I thought, oh my goodness, this life in the desert is, is just foul, <laughs> you can have it, but it's perhaps not for me. Um, so, but at that time, I visited uh, Catherine Hamlin, a uh, fistula surgeon in Addis Ababa, the capital city of Ethiopia. And whenever I was back from the desert in the city, Catherine would ask me to come to theatre with her, ask me to lunch. Um, I, I met the fistula patients, absolutely fell in love with them. and. Um, I thought, well, as a surgeon, well, I wasn't a surgeon at that stage, but this is how I would love to spend my life by helping these these women. And when I left Ethiopia that time, I was um, going to bed as I was flying in the morning, and uh, Dr. Hamlin rang me at Val's house in the in Addis Ababa, and she said, "Look, I'd like you to come back and and work for me." And so um, I said, "Yep, sure. I'm just about to go back to Australia and study theology for a year. Can I pray about it for a while?" And so after about four months of praying, I, I said. Uh, well, initially said no, but felt so convicted that that was the wrong decision. I immediately turned around and said yes, and so accepted the job. Uh, and later, after finishing obstetrics training, uh, moved out to, to work with her. So I worked with Catherine for 10 years um, in, in Ethiopia before embarking off with um, work elsewhere. In a, in a, in a, in a, in a, on a continent like Africa, it varies from place to place, I know, but a lot of places you don't have a lot of internet, which we take for granted, and some places probably don't even have mobile phone coverage or fixed lines. 
How do you find the patients in need and how do they find you? How does that work? It's really hard. Um, actually, when I first went to Africa, in the, back on the Rwandan border there, as we were talking about before, uh, there was no phones. Uh, it was well before internet and, and um, so there was the, the old postage system. And so it would take three weeks to send a letter and at best and three weeks to return one. So it was a six-week turnaround time with communication with, um, with the world. But now, I mean... Last night I was getting calls from Tanzania, uh, WhatsApp messages you know, straight away. But in the villages, um, these women are still very poor, they're illiterate, so they can't read the messages on, on their phones if they were to receive a text anyway. So, but they can, they can speak on phones if they had them, if they had coverage. So to find the fistula patients is really tough because they're often hidden away in the village. They're, they're ashamed, they don't want to go out and mix. So it's actually takes a lot more effort and more expense to find and bring fistula patients. More money is spent on that than actually the operation itself. Really? Yeah, so you, we have teams going out village to village um, trying to find the patients. And then when if, if you're, think of, think if you're a, a literate you know, girl in the remote areas of Tanzania and uh, speaking, you're speaking with the, your father, who's it's quite a patriarchal society. You need permission from your father or your husband if your husband hasn't left you to go with some strangers, you know, halfway across the country. Who knows if you're ever going to be to see her again? So to convince them and to get their trust is difficult. I mean, just this two weeks ago, I was, a week ago, sorry, I was in Tanzania. We had one patient who had delivered after a four-day labour, dead child, and actually the husband died of a chronic illness pretty much the same same time. Uh, so she was back living with her father and she was lost a lot of blood, she got infected, she was losing a lot of weight, she was dying. And um, they saved up enough money to take her to a witch doctor in the neighbouring village. And actually our outreach team was in the area at the time, they heard of this lady and they actually intercepted her on the road to the witch doctor. And um, they gave her some, some medicines, uh, they gave her some iron, gave her some fluids and said, we'll be back here in three days. We could take you back to Arusha, to our hospital there, and treat you of our fistula um, if you want. So the father was so impressed and she saw her, he saw her getting better on the antibiotics and the, the iron tablets and so forth. So after two or three days, the team came back. The father-in-law said, yep, we trust you. She's getting better already. We didn't even go to the witch doctor, didn't spend any of our money. She's already getting better. Thank you. And so we took her to, the team took her to Arusha. We were operated on her about 10 days ago. And I got news from her, actually, this is one of the calls from Tanzania last night, um, that she's doing very well. And the catheter comes out in about two days' time. And um, yeah, I'm sure she'll be cured and be able to rejoin her family. Fantastic. Mm. Um, in Australia, we used to, I don't know whether people even use the word now, but out in the bush where I live, we used to talk about the bush telegraph. You know, word travels very yep. quickly. Presumably, when the family, the village, the community see this amazing and miraculous uh, turnaround, that in itself builds confidence, builds understanding, builds a desire to do things uh, better. Yeah, I mean, the Bush Telegraph is marvellous. I mean, a third of our patients do come because of word of mouth through other patients. Um, yes, and then a third comes through our outreach team going from door to door in the villages. And, and then a third comes referred by other health centres and, and so forth. So the Bush Telegraph you know, works tremendously. Um, but the, the biggest thing with the Bush Telegraph is to try and convince people to deliver 
in hospitals and get to a hospital to have your baby to stop them from dying and stop them from getting fistulas. And so slowly that message is getting out. More hospitals are getting built um, by the governments of these countries, um, staffed, although it's very difficult to, to staff and train the people, they're, they're making progress. And so we're slowly, we're um, seeing a decrease in the number of home deliveries. So when I first lived in Ethiopia, the home delivery rate was 96%. Um, so so few hospitals, but now it's down to around 70%, uh, so moving in the right direction. Uh, similar statistics with Tanzania, not quite as dramatic. Um, so yeah, slowly, slowly, uh, progress is being made. Back to, we've touched on it, but I'd like to go back to, and then this is such a big thing for us to get our minds around, that you, you've done something that a man of your talents would not normally do. You know, you could have been a very wealthy and a highly, well, actually, you know, you may be these things, respected and listened to, you know, sort of senior leader in the medical circles in Australia and travelled the globe lecturing and all of those sorts of things. You've chosen not to do that. And you've found purpose and meaning and excitement and real enthusiasm. It just comes through in what you're doing. That's terrific. Uh, nonetheless, uh, your wife, Stephanie, who's an Australian and a gifted teacher and translator, has, has had her own work and her own niche. Um, but you married overseas, you've worked overseas, you, your two boys came into the world overseas. Um, have you ever doubted that that was the right thing to do for the boys? Has that been an issue playing in the back of your minds? Uh, no. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Um, my wife grew up in Tanzania. She was a missionary kid herself. And um, she had 18 years growing up in Tanzania. She only came to Australia three times in those 18 years. Uh, then we were, we were married in Ethiopia. <laughs> and um, for our boys, um, I guess it boils down to is what you want to instill into your children. Do you want to um, instill a comfortable life here in Australia of all the trappings that that may um, give to young children? Or do you want to model a life um, serving God, uh, which I would hope to aspire to? Uh, and expose them to, to a life of service and give them, instill in them a sense of integrity, uh, a sense of purpose, a sense of service. And hopefully that's coming through to our, our children. I have to pray and trust that to God. But I mean, a life in Africa was very, very rich, very, very enriching for them. They, they speak different languages, they've experienced different cultures, um, they've William's best friend that he still prays for every night is an orphan boy from Ethiopia and uh, he now communicates with him on WhatsApp. And um, You mix and, and deal with all sorts of different people in their lives. I mean, they had a life that was so free in Africa, playing just, you open the, the gate of the house and you're immediately surrounded by 20 boys because you're the only kid in the, ball, the street with a ball. So you're out playing soccer just on the streets all day, running around. They had a very free, very rich uh, life in, in Africa. And they still, they've been back in Australia for five years now. Uh, even last night, both of them said, oh, we miss Tanzania. You mentioned in your book the old adage that God does the healing and the doctor gets paid. I'm not sure that you did get paid very much, a but of anyway. here and there. <laughs> uh, but um, are there times when you sort of look back, you've done an operation or what have you, and you sort of think, oh, I don't know how this is going to go, but there's been a really miraculous, really extraordinary sort of shock when it's come right? Yeah, plenty. Plenty. <laughs> oh, plenty. <laughs> yes. yeah. No, no, in, uh, in medicine, we, we're fooling ourselves really. There's very little we can do to cure people of illnesses. We can't cure, for example, blood pressure. We can manage it, we can't cure it. Um, there's very, very little that uh, us, is very, we think we're very clever doctors, can actually do uh, with the body. 
And um, I mean, there's been some miraculous things. I mean, I, I can't help but think it's just the intervention of God. I just got no other explanation for it. I am a scientist. I, I do rely on my knowledge as a scientist, as a doctor, to, to treat and to do my best. But sometimes I'm just completely astounded um, by what happens in the body. For example, there was um, one lady in Sierra Leone. Uh, she was coming postnatally to the clinic. I was working in Sierra Leone at the time. Uh, she delivered her baby. She was coming for a check. And she had high blood pressure, which is a bit of a risk for, for things going wrong. Um, and she was in the waiting room sitting next to her husband and her name, her name was called and uh, she didn't move. And the husband looked at her and didn't move. And um, she was actually dead. And they asked the husband, oh, how long has she been like this? And she said, oh, she hasn't been talking for the last half hour. And so we rushed and got her onto the resuscitation table resuscitated her. It took us about 20 minutes to get a faint little heart rate back. Um, tried, tried, intubated her, extubated her. She took a few gas, died again, so heart stopped, breathing stopped. Resuscitated her again for another 40 minutes, got a faint heart rate back, a couple of, 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 um, of deep breaths, I mean a gas of breathing. That was it after about an hour and a half of resuscitation. Usually after resuscitating, you, you, you give up after half an hour or so. We don't know how long she was dead before we started resuscitating. Um, what kept you going? Oh, just the hope. Yeah. <laughs> it's very hard yeah. to stop. Yeah, you just want to hope. Yeah. You want to pray. So we, this is now late at night. <clears throat> we um, we pray. Oh, well, it was in the evening. We said, well, let's let's call it. We'll have to stop. Uh, even if she survives, she's going to be so incredibly brain damaged. There's there's no life for her here in Sierra Leone. We, this is impossible to support. So we prayed for her. Left her. Uh, we all went about, about our duties. I came back um, uh, the next morning and uh, fully expecting to hear that she had died in the night because we left her, she had a faint heart rate, she was taking the occasional gasp of breath. Anyway, she was sitting up in bed um, talking to her husband. Good grief. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. I just can't, nothing would ex ex explain that. I mean, it's just extraordinary. We couldn't do a thing. Um, God healed. <laughs> That's the only explanation I can make, I, I can say. Interestingly, at a time when faith is in being pushed to the corners, really, in Western society, that's not true in Africa, is it? I mean, there's an old saying that Christianity is a mile wide and an inch deep. Sub-Saharan Africa, perhaps an estimated 500 million, I'm told, people with some sort of nominal attachment, at least, to Christianity. Um, but uh, would you say that you're seeing a deepening of people's un faith and understanding when they come into contact with the sort of work that you're doing? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's deep in my faith. I, I would say I've learned much more from them than I've, I've imparted to, uh, I've, yes, I've learned much more from them than I've imparted to them. And uh, that's the sincerity and the depth of their, their trust in God. I mean, as missionaries, I was there as a missionary serving God and they welcome uh, missionaries. They, they're a very religious society um, and they are not suspicious of people professing a faith. Uh, they welcome discussion. They, they love to discuss. I mean, my Islamic um, colleagues and friends up in the Afar Desert, that's 99% Islamic area. I'll pray for the patients, um, pray to Jesus for the patients before we operate. They'll join in those prayers too. They'll have their morning prayers. Um, yeah, we we share and we and it's um, religion and the faith is just, just part of life. And it's a very real part of life. And I think it's partly due to necessity, partly due to poverty. When you don't have anything in this material world, you just cry out for, for something more. You're looking for something beyond what you see 
in the here and now. And so that's very real uh, in the communities that I live and work with and have lived and worked with over the last 20, 30 years or so. Uh, and it's a, a real deep and enriching and a lovely environment to be in. You've hinted a bit, Andrew, at what we can learn, what you've learned and what we can learn from our interactions in some of these less fortunate places. We send experts all over the world to teach them what we know. And in part, that's what you're doing. You're taking Western medical knowledge in there to great benefit. But can you just draw out this idea that you've learned a lot from them? Because I think often we're a bit patronising. Oh. And you've alluded to the fact that we go in there and say, we'll help you if you do X, Y and Z and deny them agency and they feel that they're being colonised again. What can we learn from African people in your view? I think there's so much we can learn from each other, isn't there? But um, that learning takes a, a long time to, to develop that. I mean, you can fly into to these countries and I see it over and over again. A group of experts fly in, they demonstrate some new technique or they, they come in with a kind of superior attitude. We, we know what we're doing here, you do this. But it's interesting that um, about 90% of the research in medicine uh, happens in Europe and America. And it's in that context, in that pathology, in that populations. But then you apply that to the majority of the world and it doesn't translate very easily. Uh, so I've had to do, as a doctor in Africa, I had to do a lot of learning from them of how to handle these diseases in those contexts because uh, they do present differently. They do, the management is, is often quite different as well. Uh, the context is different. Yeah, there's so much I could, I've learned as a doctor uh, from them to start with, but as a human, I've learned far, far more uh, from them. I mean, just, and there's so much more we can learn from them as a, as a continent, how to be satisfied by and happy living the simple life, how to be content, um, not just grabbing more things <laughs> by by building up our life with um, consumerism, but just to be content by by just with a few possessions, uh, to be happy, not to be so task driven all, all the time, and um, relationships. Uh, Relationships. I mean, the community uh, ties uh, and the family ties are so much stronger. And I think that leads to far greater happiness in life. I mean, research shows, I don't think you need research to show it, but common sense shows also that, I mean, if you've got strong communities, you've got strong family ties, um, if you've got, um, uh, if you're generous with other people, if you help other people, you're far, far happier uh, than if you're living the individ individualistic life that uh, the West uh, espouses uh, with the, your individual rights. But if you live in a community, you're much, much happier. But if you look at, um, there's all these world happiness scales and the happiest country in the world is Finland apparently. But if you look at how they measure it, it's GDP per capita, it's uh, life expectancy, it's uh, access to social services, it's all things that of course Africa misses out on. But um, even if my children noticed, I said, what's the biggest difference between Africa and here? And your child noticed too. Um, people in Africa are happy. And because uh, they've got those community ties. I mean, you don't put your child into uh, child daycare and pay a stranger to look after your child the whole day because you've got a village there that looks after your child. It's with them, it's interacting with them, the people that they love, they know, it's being cared for in a very real way. And we've missed out on that in the West. There's a lot, lot that we can learn from 
from Africa and just of how, what the important things in life are and, and how to be happy. And they do have a good time. I mean, I just recently in Uganda and I was there on a, a Saturday. So I walked down to the local football field just to watch a game. It was just a party. It was so much <laughs> fun. I mean, it, the football field was on the slope like this. It had a huge anthill in the middle. And, but there was guys playing in the mud. Um, half of them didn't have shoes. Everyone was shouting and cheering and having a great time. One guy got off, he stripped off his shirt, got off and had a kick of the ball, kind of like a pitch invader. And everyone was laughing and cheering him. And there was chickens running across the field. <laughs> It was um, so much fun. Mm. But um, I went to a soccer game in, um, on the Central Coast. My son was playing in, oh, it was, it was a completely di different atmosphere. The, the parents were taking it very seriously. Very seriously. Yeah, living their lives at, through their children. Yeah, living, shouting at their children. It, it, yeah. it wasn't much fun at all. I mean, they really do know how to enjoy life. And uh, that's and the important things in life as well. That's one thing that we need to, to learn from them. That's one thing they need to share with us in the West. We know that, in fact... Contrary to what many people think is happening around the world, we have a depopulation bomb going off in many parts of the world. China leading the pack, their population's in freefall or beginning to go into freefall, uh, even Australia. 92 countries, population coming down. We also know that uh, African and certain parts of the Middle East population are increasingly, and so a billion people roughly in Africa today, experts say it may be as high as three, three and a half billion by the end of the century. I wrote with two others an article for a leading paper in Australia a few years ago, pointing to the value of improving nutrition uh, for, for people who were not in disadvantaged around the world. And we've done a striking job of it, I have to say. We're feeding another five billion mouths every day now than we were over what we were 50 years ago. A number of stunted children, malnourished people and so forth come down dramatically. But I was really, and there's no other way of putting this, I was really taken aback, pretty offended actually, by the number of people who wrote in and said, oh, don't, don't go about this business of saving people's lives. We've got too many people on the planet. Let them die. Actually, at a pragmatic point of view, I would have thought in Africa, if a husband and wife or even just the wife are thinking, I'm going to be able to deliver babies safely and they'll grow up and they'll be, you know, uh, uh, I won't lose them, then I won't have as many children anyway. In fact, the answer is to lift the, their standards of living and get them into some decent sort of health and um, even social security parameters, a much more compassionate way to achieve the objective of avoiding, if you like, overcrowding, if that's your objective, or overpopulation in Africa. Hmm. Now, you already see that. I mean, the, the rising middle class... Do you, can I ask, do you get people making that, why are you saving these oh, lives? absolutely. Yeah, all the time. And I'm continually shocked uh, by that. I mean, it's a heartless, devoid of any sort of compassion on, or humanity. Um, and if you had that person in your arms dying, gasping, dying of hunger, dying of thirst as I have, um, how can you ignore them and, and say, look, your life's not worth it. My life's much more valuable than yours. I mean, what kind of attitude is is that i mean certainly from my christian viewpoint where we're we're inspired to love we're we're told to love we can't help but love when you've committed your life to christ and and know his forgiveness and his refreshing spirit just you you just love uh and you can't let that person go you you serve them and you want to do the best by them but so that that let those people die is just uh i i can't comprehend it sorry I met a South African, a white, very, very wealthy man. Yeah. 
and he wanted to, he thought perhaps I could help. He, he, he mocked his own sort of um, sense of superiority. Yeah. So he took his private jet into a refugee camp uh, in Africa mm. and the plane broke down, his own <laughs> private plane. He was caught there for three days. Great. <laughs> yeah, and he described, uh, this was in Cape Town when I was there a few yeah. years ago, the experience of having a mother coming up to her, crying her eyes out, saying, can't you help me? My baby's dying of starvation. Yeah and handed the baby over and he said, I've got this baby in my arms and it dies in my arms. Yeah. And he said it was a life transformational yeah, moment. Absolutely. And he started a massive program for feeding AIDS orphans in, America, in Africa. Wow. Staggering number yeah. of people. But there he was, a very privileged white man by his own mm. definition. Mm. And a baby dies in his arms. Yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe it's just because they haven't had that experience. They haven't been confronted with those situations directly. They haven't met those people suffering and, and held them and, and spoken to them and looked them in the eye that they, they have that reaction. You pointed out that 50% of the uh, uh, health care uh, in Africa is provided by mission agencies, which is pretty astonishing. Um, particularly when you think, actually, to be fair, there's a lot of other people trying to help as well, but it's still 50%. What would happen? Because, you know, many people in yours and my culture would say, oh, what are these? Do we still have missionaries? Shouldn't we have got rid of them by now? What happens if they withdraw? Um, yeah, they still provide a significant, I mean, faith-based or church hospitals uh, still provide an enormous amount of the healthcare for, for Africa, variably put between 30 to 70%. So most, most quotes um, put it around 50%. So 70% of DRC's healthcare is provided by missions. Um, so it's extraordinary. And that's counted by the number of beds um, that are provided to, to health. To, to serve the people. And I mean, it's the, the tr mission tradition. I mean, hospitals, Christian hospitals, hospitals, public hospital systems bore out of the, the Christian church way back in the Roman times uh, when the Council of Nicaea said, look, we're gonna have to have a, a place to treat poor people, I mean, sick people in every cathedral city. And so the, the sisters were also the nurses. So hence we call them sisters um, from the, the cathedral. So the- um, Is that where it came from? Yeah. The idea of calling nurses sisters. sisters. Yeah, I didn't they, know that. <laughs> I've never heard that. Yeah, so that's why they, they called they were the original out of the the, 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 the monasteries. The, Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So they, they um, yeah, so out of the Christian tradition, the public hospitals started. And, and so as, as Africa opened up, uh, missions went there to, to teach, to, to educate, to, to provide healthcare, to care. And so they're still there. And um, we, I, my organization now, the Barbara Ray Foundation, is not strictly a, um, a mission, but it's very much faith-based. And we get a lot of our, um, our funding through churches, through uh, like-minded Christian people to be able to do the work that we do. We also get funds from, from secular organizations, non-Christian organizations who trust and believe in what we do. Uh, and the government asks us to build hospitals to, um, to develop uh, their own health infrastructure in a particular area to help train their, their staff because uh, they're, they're making great progress. There has been an enormous amount of progress in the last 20 years with healthcare for a lot of these countries, but there's still a lot to do. And so it's still very much a partnership uh, between the church and between the, the governments of these countries. And so if um, Christians are to withdraw, I can't imagine they would withdraw because it's not the nature of Christianity. You, you serve and, and do the right thing. But if they were, that would leave, still leave a huge hole in um, not only the health system, but also the education system for a, a lot of these places. Um, unlike uh, Christian mission agencies and uh, organisations, uh, many uh, Western organisations, uh, the EU uh, and so forth, frequently make their aid conditional 
uh, on advocacy around uh, democracy, LGBT advocacy, access to abortion and so forth. Do you have any thoughts on the sort of cultural effect of the West's insistence that they follow our values hmm. in a way that perhaps doesn't respect their own agency? Um, yes. Yeah, so Because some people would say, well, the Christians are trying to influence them. <laughs> Yeah, to deny their own culture. Yeah, that's right. I've heard of that a lot as well. Yeah. Um, but I mean, as I said before, generally the Christians are, are welcomed, the missions are, are welcomed because they are a, a religious culture, um, a faith-based culture, and uh, we're welcomed with open arms. I mean, it w often when I go into a place, I might meet someone that says, oh, are you with the UN? I said, no, no. Are oh, you with the embassy? No, no, no. Oh, you were a missionary? I said, yeah, yeah, I'm a missionary. And immediately the atmosphere just, just dissolves into one of familiarity and, and welcome, uh, which is lovely. And um, because you've been living with the, the people, you've learned, I'm hopeless of languages, but I've learned some language, um, but you've served them and you've worked alongside them. You don't live in a, a great big house and have a huge salary, much, much, much higher than theirs. You try and identify with the people much more. Uh, and they recognise that as, as freely given love. And that breaks down all sorts of barriers. And it's a lesson that I learnt very early in my career, one of my first major operations I did as a fistula surgeon was a lady who was from uh, an area of Ethiopia, uh, Islamic area, and um, she um, had a fistula, of course, and she didn't speak my language. She didn't have, know my religion. She didn't uh, know my culture, and I didn't know hers. Um, we really had absolutely nothing in common. I'm sure if we talked to each other, there wouldn't be much that we could agree upon. Um, but I wanted to, to help her. I, I felt compassion for her. I mean, I think that was God-given. And But see, her injuries were so dramatic, there's nothing that anyone could do to cure her. She was one of the, the few percent of ladies that are beyond cure. The, the bladder's been destroyed. Uh, the birth canal's completely destroyed. You can reconstruct as much as you can, but there'll still be uh, leaking some urine. And so I did my best, but I had to talk to her after we removed the catheter and she was obviously still wet. And I said, look, we've tried everything. I've done my best. Um, but there's, I was almost in tears. Just was my first patient that I couldn't cure. And I said, look, but we can't cure you. Uh, we're going to have to find ways to help you live with this condition. And uh, she just looked at me and said through a translator, she said, out of all the people I've met, um, this place and this hospital, all my people, they rejected me. All my, my family, they rejected me. Uh, you've come here, I've come here, you've put your arm around me and you've helped me to stand, even when no one else would come near me because I smelt so badly. You've helped me on and off the operating table. You've helped me get out of bed. You've loved me and that's enough. And so that just simple thing by sharing love is what we try and do as a Christian, and it changes lives, it changes cultures, it changes people, uh, as Christ's love for us changes us and uh, to, to a life that serves. But yes, I mean, a lot of aid is conditional. Um, even donors, I went to one of the four major banks here in Australia recently, trying to get money out of them, and um, it became evident that their, their charitable giving was to help youth uh, get jobs as long as they opened an account with them. So I thought, this is not giving, this is just investing. <laughs> so it was always something conditional. And likewise, with the big donors, they come into countries now and they say, you must do this, otherwise we won't give you the money. And uh, to quote a, um, a good friend of mine who's actually was the professor of um, geography at Dar es Salaam University in um, Tanzania, and very astute man, fully aware of the, the politics that's going on. 
Uh, he said, it's, we are seeing it now as just a form of neo-colonialism, a, um, a form of imperialism. Wow. He actually used the word, a very strong word, he said it's a new slavery. Wow. He um, said the, the West imposing their values on us when we don't want those is um, a form, he called it slavery. So very interesting and strong remark. He said a lot of governments now are saying, look, keep your money. We'd rather be poor than accept your imposed values. Uh, so, yeah, and that's right. I mean, you, you can't change culture. You can't change people at the point of a gun. You can't force people. You can defeat people and you can enslave people but you can't win people. And I think that's the difference between the Christian message, the Christian um, uh, core essence is, to, is Christ's love. And that wins people, it persuades people, it attracts people, and that changes, changes people. I have to ask you, because you've been involved in this work of restoring the dignity and the hope for black African women by and large, and by extension their communities, we've seen a lot of protests, sometimes pretty ugly in the West, ostensibly in the name of attacking racism under the Black Lives Matter banner. Now, that was avowedly Marxist. We know that. Um, I can't help wondering whether people can see the contrast, you won't like me saying this, between somebody who walks the talk and someone who just does the talking. You may not want to respond to that, <laughs> but I'm going to make that observation. All right. What you've done is a great challenge and a good challenge. If you really care, then go and do something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they, or uh, contribute to those who are. Yeah, I, Don't burn down businesses in an American city. No, no. Your, your, your tool is, is love. And if you really um, uh, value black lives or any life for that matter, um, yeah, the, the tool is genuine sacrificial love. So you returned to Australia during 2008 and started, uh, did you start or you were involved with the start of the Barbara May Foundation? Two things. Um, what is it? Uh, and in particular, you're obviously seeking to expand the reach and the work of a number of facilities across Africa. Can you give us a feel for those two and, and how, if people really say Black Lives Matter, they can help you help others or be involved. Mm. Yeah, so up until I, I came back for a break in 2008 and did actually some um, training in plastic surgery to reconstruct, learn how to reconstruct things more properly. And while back in Australia, I, we started the Barbara May Foundation. Up until that point, I'd been operating on up to 600 fistula patients, just myself every year and training others and so forth. And so every day- That's a couple of days. Um, oh, you no. don't operate every day, but um, <laughs> yeah. So oh, some days you do. Yeah. yeah, some days you do eight, some days you do none. But mm. so, um, but every story is a heart wrenching story of loss, babies dying, of loss of dignity, and you know that it's uh, preventable. So um, I'd been with the Ham Catherine Hamlin for those those years up until two thousand and eight. She was busily doing um, the fistula work in Ethiopia. I wanted to take what I'd seen in Ethiopia to the rest of Africa and also to prevent it. And we prevent it just the same as we prevented it in America, put the first fistula hospital in New York out of business, by, um, by building maternity hospitals, by enabling women to have safe access, has to be free because these women can't afford it, um, and um, has to be safe and, and accessible. So by building maternity hospitals where there aren't maternity hospitals. So to do that, I needed a fundraising 
entity. So we started the Barbara May Foundation and launched that in actually 2009. It, um, it was tough work starting something new um, and takes a lot of perseverance and uh, I would say a lot of intervention by God by blessing us just at the, the right time and in the right way. But slowly uh, we're spreading the work and it hasn't just been me, there's other organisations doing it as well. Um, there's, you know, so Barbara May Foundation is partnering with several, several other organisations to reach this objective. Um, but slowly we like to think we're, we're making a difference in you know, some women's lives. Now, I know that you've done fundraising here in Australia. I know that you've also done it in America. Do you get people who have been successful in life and are well resourced? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we're very, very grateful. <laughs> yeah, immensely grateful. And it always seems to come not because you look for it, but because um, uh, it's volunteered. Um, yeah, so nine times out of ten, I look for funds. I go out and write proposals. I meet people. Uh, but it's really the unexpected places that uh, God blesses you with the funds to be able to, to do it. So actually now we've got, um, miraculously, we've got uh, funds to build two new hospitals, one in Tanzania, one in Uganda. We're very, very grateful for that, um, both from family foundations. And um, now we've got to raise the, the money to, to run them, of course. Of course, that's the, the difficult thing. Running costs is an ongoing issue mm -hmm. and something that we have to work tirelessly on all year round, every year. What will those hospitals look like? We're used to enormous hospitals that take you forever <laughs> well, they, to wander around and yeah. no, you corridors for miles. And no, I like to build small, containable things. And I think it works much better. If you have a staff, we have a staff of between 50 to 70 in our hospitals. Um, so, um, and when you have a, a staff like that, you, you work together as a family, you know what everyone's doing, you keep each other accountable. When it comes to a bit bigger than that, you need another layer of administrations, things start to get lost, things start to become a bit impersonal, not so fun to work in. So we keep our hospital small with a capacity of about 2,500, 3,000 deliveries a year. Um, and it's quite cheap to build. Uh, in Australia, you budget uh, building a hospital for at least $1 million per bed. So when you build a 100-bed hospital, it's at least $100 million, at least, so and upwards of that. So we can build, um, so a 50-bed hospital we've just built in Tanzania, uh, the whole building cost was um, 1.8 million um, Australian. So, <laughs> And we're doing all that. So 250 operations a year, outreach work, 15,000 uh, clinic visits a year, uh, 2,500, 3,000 deliveries a year. Work it just goes on and on. So and it's and it works and we, we get good. You don't need all the. That's a, another thing you learn about healthcare. You can do a lot with a basic healthcare service uh, that's quite cheap to, to run, and then you have to spend millions to increment your improvements just by a decreasing amount a percentage. Mm. Um, so in Australia we're blessed. We're so so wealthy in comparison, we can afford to spend those millions to increase your health outputs by just that mm. fraction of a, a percent. Mm. Um, but you can do an awful lot. So for example, in our hospitals, it only costs 250 Australian dollars, which is around about 180 US dollars, for a lady to have all her four clinic visits in the hospital while she's pregnant, ultrasounds, blood tests, delivery in our hospital with a 14% chance of needing a caesarean to have your baby, postnatal check, and in two of our hospitals also immunize your child, you know, 250 Australian dollars. So um, you can do a lot with very little. Andrew, you've been very generous with your time. I've enjoyed it enormously, and I hope lots of people will tune in and enjoy it uh, in the same way. Great. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, John.
Thank you for listening to Conversations with John Anderson. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave a rating and a review in iTunes. It helps other listeners find us.